Last Sunday, we had a joyous celebration as we gave out third grade Bibles. And Martin had known what was coming, but he didn't know that there were going to be four different layers to unwrap of his Bible. And watching him go, another layer? Another layer? Was just priceless. And we had wrapped it as a gift because the Bible is a gift. But we also wrapped the Bible in newspaper. And I said, we're wrapping this in newspaper because this is good news. Martin is always so much more observant than his pastor. And he immediately noted, that's not good news. That's about Hurricane Harvey. All week, I have been reading the scriptures that we just heard today, and I have been reading the news, and I have just been going, God, where is the good news in any of this? On Monday, I was thinking about this because it was 9-11. And I'm reading through the Hebrew Bible passage, that passage from Exodus. And I remembered six years ago preaching on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And the denomination sent out uh, a bulletin and said, Please, pastors, we like it when you preach the lectionary. That's good when you preach the assigned readings that we've all agreed we're going to read from each week. But maybe don't read this one this day. Maybe reading a story of triumph over Egyptians in which we celebrate the drowning and the death of so many people in a time when we're easy, it's easy to confuse Egyptians of the Pharaoh's era and Egyptian Muslims of today's era, what happens if our scripture accidentally inflames anti-Muslim rhetoric and violence? So I read through that scripture passage again on 9-11, and I thought, God, where is the good news? And on Tuesday, I met with my clergy prayer group, and we were praying through Uh, we were praying through uh, the Romans and the gospel. And and we started talking about forgiveness and differences in the congregation and differences in the community. And and we had all these questions like, "Mm, does justice involve judgment? Can we avoid judgmentalism while we strive for justice? What does forgiveness look like? How similar is the king in the gospel to a president who pardons sheriffs who've overstepped the bounds of the law? And we kept wrestling with these questions. And I went home and I wrote a really amazing sermon. It was really, really amazing, as are all of the sermons that I don't preach for you. (laughs) 
The word for good news is gospel. And as I've reflected on the text this week and reflected on what's happening in our city, the most of the good news I'm coming up with is, well, gospel is inherently political, and the gospel has to speak directly to the news of the day and say, this is not all there is. There is good news, too. But then I just keep asking myself, but what is the good news? On Friday, I threw out that really excellent sermon that you don't get to hear. And I looked at the news, and I looked at the texts, and I started reading a lot by Martin Luther King, Jr. And I got a letter from our United Methodist District Superintendent here in St. Louis, and I want to read some of that to you today. Our district superintendent, Reverend Londia Granger-Wright, writes, I am convinced that such rulings will continue to occur in our state and in our country because of the way the laws are written. It has long saddened me to know that it is not against the law for police officers to kill a person fleeing arrest if the officer believes the person has a deadly weapon or is endangering life or inflicting serious injury. I believe that as long as laws are written in such broad language, we will continue to have verdicts that pull at our heartstrings. This is one of the reasons why I believe the Gateway Central District should become known as the district that works consistently for justice. The key word is consistently. It is right and good to peacefully and publicly protest. It is also right and good to challenge laws and confront systems that allow such injustices to flourish for years and decades and centuries. I support our right to protest publicly and peacefully. This is not only our right as citizens, this is in line with our United Methodist beliefs. Pastors, tell your congregations this week, we struggle together, not alone. To ignore what happens outside our church walls is always wrong. While we do not all agree, we are all followers of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Let us respond in ways that honor God, for we cannot experience peace without working for justice. And you have an insert in your bulletin about Reverend Granger Wright's um, vision for this district and how we can be a district of justice. And there will be a workshop and a keynote next Sunday afternoon exploring this topic. So, we all have had different emotions and experiences over the past week. And I'm going to share some of mine with you from the last 24 hours. And they might be different from emotions and thoughts that you've been having. But I want to see if there are ways that we can read our own experiences and read scripture and find good news in both. So yesterday morning, 
I got up and I read some more MLK in which this person who was just amazing in promoting nonviolence said, it is necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. Riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. A riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. And he goes on to address two false notions that exist in our society. One is that time will solve the problem of racial injustice. He says, there are those, and they are often sincere people, who say that we should slow up and just be nice and patient and continue to pray, and in 100 or 200 years, the problem will work itself out. But time is neutral. Time can be used either constructively or destructively. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words of the bad people and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time. And we must realize that time is always right to do right. And then he addresses the second false notion. He says it's the notion that legislation can't solve the problem. Now, I would be the first one to say that there's a real need for a lot of heart changing in our country, and I believe in changing the heart. I preach about it. I believe in the need for conversion in many instances and regeneration, to use theological terms. And I would be the first to say that if the race problem in America is to be solved, the white person will have to rise to the majestic heights of being obedient to the unenforceable. But after saying this, let me give the other side. That although it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. Even though it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, it can restrain the heartless. Even though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, it can restrain him from lynching me. 
And I think that's pretty important also. So while the law may not change hearts, it can and it does change habits. And when you begin to change human habits, pretty soon the hearts will be changed. And I'm convinced that we still need strong civil rights legislation, a bill to make the administration of justice real all over the country, including fair housing laws. I can see no more dangerous trend in our country than the constant developing of a predominantly Negro central cities ringed by white suburbs. This is only inviting disaster. And the only way this problem will be solved is by the nation taking a strong stand and state and local governments taking a strong stand against discrimination in all of these areas. That was written in 1967. So that was my morning read. Then I headed down to Heman Park at 10.30, and I ran into several of you. And it was kind of a little party in Heman Park while we were waiting to see what was going to happen, just knowing, oh, yes, we're going to stand and we're going to protest and, and we'll figure out what happens. And I met up with people from the synagogue next door um, who were saying, yeah, we thought this was more important than going to services. And I was like, uh, as a clergy person, I never think anything's more important than going to services. <laughs> And then I went home, and I was like, all right, I'm going to revise my sermon again, like for the 18th billionth time. And, and I kept asking, where's the good news? Where's the good news? And then at 5.30 p.m., I got a phone call from clergy in the city who said, the protests are moving to the loop. They're gathering at Cicero's. Is the church available as a safe space? And we had agreed. We had had committee meetings. We'd talked about it. We'd voted on it back in 2014 that we were going to offer a safe space. So I said, yes, we can open up. We can be a safe space for those who need to flee And I called Brad, and I called a, several of you who lived around here. And I arrived, and we had about mm, 10 or 12 clergy throughout the whole evening, including um, Reverend Johanna from uh, Trinity Presbyterian and uh, Reverend Mike Angel, who's at Holy Communion Episcopal. Um, and then after the Sabbath was over, um, the interim rabbi next door, Rabbi Greenfield, he came over. Um, I had left him and Maharat Rory like a bunch of text messages saying, as soon as you turn on your phones, please come here. <laughs> and when Maharat Rory came over, um, she said, I'm so sorry I was out of touch today. And I was like, are you kidding me? Your prayers from your Sabbath, they keep the world turning. We have needed your prayers this day. We've needed your prayers One of the pastors who stopped by is a pastor at Living Word United Methodist, uh, and he and he was sharing about a participating in the die-in down at Del Mar in Skinker, where it's like a sit-in except you're you're lying down, and they were in silence for six minutes, staring up at the sky, and he said he spent that entire time in prayer, just six minutes in prayer, 
And when they got up at the end of the six minutes, Reverend Shanks said, it felt like a resurrection. That we feel like we're stagnant and we're stuck and we're just here. And yet there's hope for standing up and hope for change and hope that God is able to work in the midst of all of this. Around 9.30, the official protest ended. And about a thousand people who'd been protesting, they had not needed our safe space. We had maybe a dozen people who needed to use the bathrooms or like use water, but it wasn't, no, nobody was in desperate need of our safe space last night. Unlike the way Central Reform Congregation uh, down in the Central West End had been used on Friday night. Um, and we had to tell Maharat Rory and Rabbi Greenfield, who of course hadn't been following any of the news, that one of the other Jewish synagogues in this, in this city had been a place of refuge on Friday night. And then neo-Nazis on Twitter had started a hashtag gas the synagogue campaign on Saturday. But we weren't needed. We were here we weren't needed. And so we closed things up and we finished eating pizza and the puppy that Pastor Johanna from the Presbyterians had brought, the puppy went home. We all dispersed. We closed up our safe space. And yet about 100 people had stayed in the loop after being told by the other protesters not to. And so at 11 p.m., I got a call that said, is this place still open? And I said, no. I'm home. And that's when I found out that a handful of people were causing property destruction. Broken windows throughout our church's neighborhood. And I was so angry because I believe it's important to protest. I believe it's important to advocate. The theme for today is advocacy, and that was chosen like several months ago when we chose our Healthier St. Louis theme. And yet I kept reading and reading and reading this morning the scripture, the news, and trying to figure out exactly what happened when is so hard. I can assure you that when I left a little after 10, nothing had been vandalized. No humans had been hurt. And I just keep thinking of that verse in John where Jesus is arrested and Pilate interrogates him. And Pilate eventually asks, what is truth? And there's no answer at least none that's recorded. I think of the line in Jeremiah chapter 8, where it doesn't do much good to say, oh, everything's at peace and all shall be well, where Jeremiah the prophet says, they treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing. All is well, all is well. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
And I want a really nice and easy tie-up to the sermon. I want to read scripture and say, yep, there's that one uniform message, and it makes everything better. And I want to look at contemporary justice issues and say, well, obviously, this is what we need to do. If we just do this one thing, then everything's fixed, everything's solved. This one change to our laws or to our hearts or to our city would just make everything right. And I set out a bunch of cards in the Fellowship Hall, so please sign them. We'll take them down to all the business owners um, and the people who are working on cleanup. If you drove down the loop this morning, you can see that people are already painting, um, already working on those boarded-up windows to offer something beautiful in the midst of destruction. And we know that we know that Jesus affirms over and over and over again that human life is more important than property. And yet I'm sad, and I'm angry, and I'm asking, where is the good news? So I want to close with the words from the Iona community in Scotland. These are lyrics from a song entitled, Jesus Christ is Waiting. Jesus Christ is waiting, waiting in the streets. No one is his neighbor, all alone he eats. Listen, Lord Jesus, I am lonely too. Make me, friend or stranger, fit to wait on you. Jesus Christ is raging, raging in the streets, where injustice spirals and real hope retreats. Listen, Lord Jesus, I am angry too. In the kingdom's causes, let me rage with you. Jesus Christ is healing, healing in the streets, curing those who suffer, touching those he greets. Listen, Lord Jesus, I have pity too. Let my care be active, healing just like you. Jesus Christ is dancing, dancing in the streets, where each sign of hatred he with love defeats. Listen, Lord Jesus, I should triumph too. On suspicion's graveyard, let me dance with you. Jesus Christ is calling, calling in the streets. Who will join my journey? I will guide their feet. Listen, Lord Jesus, let my fears be few. Walk one step before me. I will follow you. Where is the good news? The good news is within each and every one of us. And we're called to see it, to name it, to call it out and bring it forth in our own lives, in the lives of those around us, and in this community and city that we love.